This is a Conversations with Criminologists podcast, brought to you by Criminology at University College Cork. This series was produced by Dr. Orla Lynch, with research assistant Helen Russell, and edited by Kevin Hosford. Dr. David Griffin, NUI Galway. Thank you for taking part in UCC's podcast series. Can you tell me how you got into academia? Well, I actually started off doing a law degree in UCC um, and when I finished that I did a master's in criminal justice in UCC. I think the master's is still going there actually. And uh, after that I applied for a job in Inuit Galway as a lecturer for a one-year uh, contract, um, which I got. So I was really very young and didn't know what I was doing, so that's how I got into academia. And how did you get into criminology in particular? Uh, well, actually, when I was in doing law in UCC, I, you know, I was I was enjoying it somewhat, but I wasn't really sure if it was being something I wanted to do career wise, or I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a solicitor or a barrister. So um, I was kind of having that kind of. I think a lot of students have that at the time. You know, they're not really sure what they want to do after when they finish college. And then I I applied for an internship actually in San Francisco, uh, with the public defender's office, and so I went over there for a summer and worked with an uh, attorney who was defending um, uh, clients, offenders, or, or accused people. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, interacting with the clients. And I kind of, at that stage, I kind of decided I wanted to work in that area of criminal justice. I didn't really know what. So when I came back home from the internship, I went back into college into final year. I kind of decided that that was the area that I wanted to focus on. And um, so after I did, I did the Masters in Criminal Justice, it kind of led me into criminology and criminal justice. So really, I would say the internship was what kind of changed my perspective. And then I having mentors in college that kind of encouraged me to pursue research in criminology or criminal justice. But they were the kind of things that I say influenced me the most at, at that age. What criminology work has influenced your work? How did it impact the direction of your research? But I think when I was in college, uh, or when I was doing my masters, it was Michel Foucault. Discipline and punish influenced me a lot in terms of just my perspective and kind of opening your mind up to different ways of looking at the same problem and maybe not accepting the traditional narrative of what's put out there. So I, that really influenced me at the time, and really opened my mind to the idea of, um, you know, thinking from a critical point of view. And I think that was really encouraged actually in UCC when I was doing the Masters. And I think that was really a good part of that programme, uh, that it really opened your mind to looking at things or, or issues from a very different perspective from what you might have kind of assumed or, or what might have been in kind of you might part of your um, thought process without you even realising it. So that really influenced me in terms of how I look at different issues and in criminal justice. And then I guess uh, later on, David Garland's work, The Culture Control, was really influenced my work and also... Jonathan Simon and uh, Simon and Feely, the uh, uh, article, the new penology, uh, which focused a lot about risk and risk assessment, also influenced my work a lot because when I started my PhD, uh, the focus was on risk and risk assessment and using that as a frame of an analysing uh, decision making in criminal justice. How would you describe your research area? I guess my research area would be about uh, looking at decision making in criminal justice and what influence decision decision makers. And I look specifically at 
uh, life imprisonment and parole decision making you know so uh, life imprisonment was you know when I was setting about looking at my research what kind of problems I wanted to focus on I wanted to achieve certain objectives I wanted to look at a, a problem that was current and that I thought was of significance um, I wanted to look at empirical research and conduct empirical research but I also wanted to kind of use uh, what's you know what the the research and the theory in criminology and apply it to a practical problem in Ireland and uh, so I chose life imprisonment as as a problem because it's the ultimate penalty in uh, that a person can be uh, subject to but also they're involved in a subsequent significant legal decision which is their subsequent release you know and questions about that are questions of international significance I think because you know life imprisonment is the alternative to capital punishment and um, you know we're still figuring out on a, in Ireland but also in many countries how to manage the life imprisonment issue what point will somebody be released you know at what point do we say somebody has served enough time in prison should we have life without parole or is that something that should not exist in any jurisdiction so there's all these kind of questions that are being raised now in relation to life imprisonment and I just I suppose use Ireland as a case study to look at some of the broader issues as well outside of the country. What is the most influential piece you have published and why? Um, I think probably the most influential piece I've published is my most recent book, uh, which is called Killing Time, Life Imprisonment and Parole in Ireland, which is the culmination of uh, a lot of work over a long period of time. I started off as a PhD and then I started you know, publishing diff different works, sometimes co-authored pieces and sometimes sole pieces, but it culminated in th this book, Killing Time, which I think is um, you know, a good representation of my work uh, since my PhD. So you mentioned killing time. Can you discuss issues you had, for example, with data collection and empirical research? Uh, sure. So uh, when I set out to look at this issue of life imprisonment and parole, um, I suppose one thing that was obvious was that there hadn't been any previous studies on an empirical level on this particular topic. So, you know, one of the... Uh, challenges in Ireland and maybe one of the benefits as, as a researcher is that there's not much research done that's that's a positive on the on the challenging side you know it's hard to get the ball rolling sometimes when nobody has done any uh, kind of major work on it previously so one of the challenges I definitely faced when I was doing my PhD was how to get access you know and even what to get access to you know because there was so little information out there about parole about life imprisonment so that was a really a major challenge and obviously um, I wanted to conduct an empirical project. I wanted to look at um, parole decision making. And in order to do that, you have to focus on the parole decision makers and the information that they're using to make decisions on parole. So I was trying over quite a long period of time to gain access to uh, parole decision makers and the material on which they base their decisions. And uh, that was quite a difficult process. Certainly it was probably the most difficult part of the PhD process for me. And, um, you know, there was lots of challenges, some of which were just by nature of the fact that it was a new area that nobody had really done some work on before. So I was kind of trying to build up and gain, gather information as I went. Uh, another part of the process was that it was a political decision. The Minister for Justice make, decides at what point a life sentence prisoner gets released. And so by its nature, it's politically sensitive and any kind of research on politically sensitive topics is going to be more challenging. So you know, in terms of gaining access, you know, it was a very long process. But I think the the parole board and, and, and some ministers did agree to be researched. 
or did, did agree to be interviewed, I should say. And, uh, you know, I think what, what, what those interviews led to was quite fruitful and they really uh, were very honest in their interviews about the process, which was really to my benefit in terms of the research. And I think to, it's to the benefit of the public in terms of the information that you can put out there and put in the platform through our research in criminology. So how did you go about researching a sensitive area where politicians are the decision makers? Um, well, in terms of gaining access, there was a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions, a lot of letter writing, uh, a lot of uh, assurances made about the type of research that was being conducted. You know, I mean, I think for uh, decision makers, one of the concerns, naturally enough, is that the life imprisonment population is small and they don't want adverse publicity uh, specific to individuals. You know, these people are being released in the community. And one of the problems that decision makers would have talked about in terms of their own um, decision-making process was that there's such public interest in these in these releases you know most of these people have committed murders or are some of them are more notorious than others or have attracted more attention but all of them have, would have attracted some attention um, in terms of uh, the media so this is a kind of an issue for them constantly in their decision-making process and of course you know an outsider coming in to do research you know there's a kind of issues in relation to trust uh, that might exist there you know what's your agenda what's your purpose and that's uh, totally legitimate you know so um, you know from my point of view I had to make a number of assurances and build up relationships over time that uh, allow people to gain, give you access to 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 themselves as decision makers and to, that there be some level of trust about the professionalism that you would uh, treat their interview and how you would produce uh, the work subsequently in a PhD or publications or, or whatnot. So I think it's it takes time. And I think one of the challenges in Irish criminal justice, I do think it's changed actually in the last number of years, you know, since I did my PhD. Um, I think it's changed in the sense that uh, the Department of Justice is more open to research and more open to outsiders coming in to um, evaluate various different aspects of the criminal justice system. They've set up a new research funding strategy within the Department of Justice where people can apply for um, uh, for funding to conduct uh, various different projects uh, that they're interested in. So I think that's a really positive step and it kind of shows a, a change in the approach to criminal justice research, which is, I think is really, really important uh, in terms of building a, a, a base level of knowledge across all different aspects of the criminal justice system, which I think is really positive development. What did you find out about the influence of politics in the criminal justice system? Uh, well, I suppose one of the things that I focus on initially with the research, or I thought would be the focus of it, of the decision-making process, was this issue of risk and risk assessment. You know, all the decision-makers, when they were talking about um, decision-makings around release of licensed prisoners, their primary concern would always have been risk, the risk of reoffending. But then, you know, when when asking different questions that emerged through the, the data analysis that there are actually other factors uh, influencing parole outcomes. You know, the process is political. The parole board make recommendations to the minister and the minister ultimately makes the decision. So, you know, in this kind of environment, um, you know, politics would always play a role where the decision, ultimate decision maker is a politician and the consequences fall to her or him. So um, what I found out, I suppose, is that the parole board were in some ways influenced by what 
their perception of the minister's approach might be. And sometimes that wasn't always the accurate uh, perspective from the minister's point of view. So there's a little bit of a loss in translation type of situation. You know, when pro decisions are just made about made for, by the parole board and the minister, it's a whole process that leads to the parole board decision. So probation service put it, put in a report on risk and prison psychology service have a report that the parole board will review. There's an interview of the life sentence prisoner. So there's a whole range of different decision-making processes that happen before the parole process. But once it gets to the parole board, you know their decision is to make a uh, recommendation on release. They're interested in risk, and certainly if anybody was above a low level of risk, you know they be would be wouldn't have been inclined to release. At least when I was doing the research, um, but there would also have been factors such as you know the seriousness of the offence and you know the the depravity of the offence in some instances. You know one of the problems with the life sentence is that um, it's mandatory for murder. So a judge has no discretion about different levels of seriousness or the level of depravity of the offence or, or any of those factors that would normally happen at sentencing when there's discretion. So with no discretion at the sentencing side of things, the parole board then are kind of in this position of making assessments of, you know, within the offence of murder where everyone has a life sentence, you know, are there... Are there people who have committed more serious offences? Is there more violence in one case than another? So they're in some ways involved in what would traditionally be a sentencing role, but by virtue of the sentence being mandatory for murder, uh, means that that kind of is kicked down the line to the parole board. And some would say that that's not an appropriate um, use or appropriate decision for the parole board. But the reality is the system that we have in terms of the mandatory life sentence doesn't allow any discretion in relation to its imposition and it creates then a problem down the line because within murder there obviously is a range of different types of offending and behaviours involved and you know it's the court cannot account for it and um, it is the case probably that the parole board feel that they must account for it at some level you know so that that was one of the findings of the research and the second thing is that politics did play a role in the decision making process you know, different ministers took different positions in relation to this uh, issue of release. You know, the parole board were in some ways reacting to that, you know, and there was some kind of a feedback loop going on there. Uh, I do think things are probably have changed in the last couple of years in relation to that since this study was done. But I think the, the main issue is that in a very unstructured and informal environment, individuals can have great influence, you know. So I think that's one of the the pros and cons of the Irish criminal justice system is that it can be very discretionary, certainly in different parts of the system. That can operate to the benefit of those subject to the process, so an accused person or an offender or, or whoever. And it can also opposite, uh, operate in the opposite direction. You know, It can also serve severity or it can serve a harsh approach depending on the individuals. So I think you know the, the system that's in place there that structures decision-making is really important and how we manage that is, uh, in, in the Irish criminal justice system is, is very important. The parole process sounds very discretionary. Are there any plans to address this? Well, they have, uh, there's a parole bill uh, since 2016, which was introduced actually uh, by Fianna Fáil, Jim O'Callaghan and Fianna Fáil introduced a parole bill. And it is currently at report stage, it's coming up to report stage in the Dáil. So that bill effectively proposes to remove the minister from the decision-making process and to create a statutory framework for the parole board. And the decision-making would would be different at the moment. Let's say the parole board meet once a month. 
there's about 12 people on the full board and they discuss the various people who are up for a review and they make decisions or recommendations and that goes to the minister. So under this process, the parole board making the decision, there'll be a parole panel of about three people or maybe five people uh, who will make a decision and on whether somebody will be released or whether they be preferred to change. Um, that process can either be a paper review effectively, so not too dissimilar what, to what's occurring at the moment, and also an oral hearing. So we don't have an oral hearing for parole, people who are under consideration for parole at the moment. So they have an interview, but they don't have a hearing. And they have very limited rights in terms of legal representation and their input into the process is quite minimal. Uh, so that attempts to change that aspect. It also it brings victims in more in terms of victim input is a part of the bill. And the criteria then are changed, you know, because the process has been quite informal. This sets out a range of criteria. Now, actually, a lot of the criteria that the probe are currently use are reflected in this bill. And a lot of what is in risk assessment is what's what the probe board currently use and also are in this bill. Now, there are lots of other elements to the criteria which might raise concern about whether it's still involved in the sentencing process. So this bill is by no means perfect. Uh, I've worked actually with Irish Penal Reform Trust on a paper putting the case forward for amendments to the bill, uh, certain aspects that we think are problematic um, in relation to this bill. So this bill has been going since 2016, it's now 2019. And uh, it's unclear really as to what's going to happen with this bill, uh, whether it will continue its course through the Houses of the Oireachtas or whether there be a number of very significant amendments to it and changes to it. Uh, or whether it'll be redrawn and redrafted, you know. So there, it's not, it's not, it's by no means certain that this bill will become law, and um, it, but it is quite unusual, um, and it is kind of, it's quite unusual at the moment for because it is an opposition bill. Normally, opposition bills from like say Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are in government will not make it past any stage, you know. So the fact that it's gotten this stage is is good. I think it's probably because of the supply agreement that's in place, comprehensive supply agreement that's in place at the moment. It probably wouldn't have gotten this far before that. Uh, how much further it will go, it's unclear, you know, because the last time it was discussed was, uh, I think maybe June 2017, so not last summer, the summer before. Uh, so nothing has been heard since. So that's a cause for concern, certainly in terms of the urgency in relation to reform. But reform is certainly necessary. I think all parties are in agreement that reform is necessary. It's just a question of what for- form that reform should take. Can you explain the process when someone is convicted of murder? Okay, so when someone is convicted of murder, there is usually a sentencing hearing for, for all individuals. And at that sentencing hearing, under normal circumstances, um, a judge will, there be evidence from the prosecution and the defence uh, about, I suppose, the prosecution arguing for, or kind of putting evidence forward, indicating what level of sentence should be imposed and the defence presenting evidence that there should be leniency often in this case because of the circumstances of the offender and judges make decisions based on the principle of proportionality that is taking into consideration the uh, the gravity of the offence and the circumstances of the offender so that's the job of the judge to make that assessment in murder because the life sentence is mandatory there is no real need to go into all that kind of that particular uh, hearing and the evidence that would ordinarily be caused because the sentence is mandatory, the judge has no discretion. So a life sentence will be handed down and the person will be committed to prison. 
if they're not already uh, in prison on remand uh, during their trial process and pre-trial process. So at that stage, they have seven years really before they are eligible for a review by the parole board. And that's seven years. That one of the issues is sometimes I think that has changed in recent times. Those who were serving life sentences they didn't really engage that much with the services, the therapeutic services that were there. And so they got to the parole board process and hadn't really engaged. Uh, and they're trying to change that now within the prison service. They're trying to uh, ensure that life sentence prisoners are engaging from the from the start of their sentence, which I think is really, really important. But um, at the seven-year stage, they're eligible for review. Now, we know from the average time served by life sentence prisoners that they won't be released until much later. So the average time served last year, let's say in 2017, would have been 18.5 years, and the previous year would have been 22 years. So it's ranged really in the last about five or six years, it's ranged between that 17.5 year point to 22 years. So we know that the life sentence prisoner will be in the parole process for quite a long time. So they're reviewed usually every three years. They can be reviewed earlier if so, uh, but it's usually every three years at the start. And uh, they'll have an interview, there'll be reports written about uh, from various different agencies, probation, psychology, uh, the Gardaí, you know, the, the prison governor, etc., etc. So they are in that process every three years. The recommendations made at the beginning of the process by the parole board would be more likely to do with sentence management, that the person needs to engage in the therapeutic services. There might be issues in relation to prison discipline that they need to address. There might be issues in relation to substance use. They might want them to work in terms of a plan, in terms of their release and re-entry. You know, do they have family support? Do they have employment prospects? Are they working on gaining a skill, for example, in terms of employment? You know, is there anyone who will offer them employment? You know, all these kind of things are part of the early stages towards release. And as a person is nearing release, recommendations will be made to like send them to a step-down facility or to, to, to move them from the current institution that they're in. Let's say if they're in, for example, Midlands Prison, they might be moved to uh, various different places that was, are less uh, more likely to facilitate the person re-engaging in society and release, you know, so day releases and that they might work on skills there or, or whatnot. So they're, they're transitioning them towards release. They're not on release just yet. They're not a, what they call full temporary release, but they are working towards it. So it's kind of this process, you know, I would call it the review process cycle, you know, that they're in this kind of cycle every three years. Now, from their point of view, uh, there are kind of issues about uh, what's the point in engaging in seven-year point when you know you're not going to release in 10 years' time. But the the system really is trying to incentivize them to engage over that period of time. And there is work that needs to be done. There are lots of challenges. For example, you know, a person might uh, be challenging their conviction. They might be convicted of murder and they want to appeal that conviction. They So they're not in accepting that they have committed the crime you know, because they're appealing it and they're going to high courts. So maybe that appeal will be successful. But then let's say during that process, they're not really going to be engaging. So there's all these different challenges. Every individual really is coming at it from a different perspective and there's no real kind of template. But I suppose one of the things about politics that we're talking about is that the minis- different ministers will come and go during that review 10-year cycle that from the 7 years to the 17 years. So there'll be a different minister who will be fresh eyes on the particular case and with different perspectives on decision-making, different perspectives on issues of criminal justice and law and order. And I suppose what the influence of that or the implications of that are, of course, for the parole board, if it was a parole board, there will be a change over naturally in terms of human resources also. So, you know, it's not, it's not a problem just for the political elements. It's always an issue about the, the length of time someone will, will be engaging with the process. 
decision makers and aware of their decisions in relation to the sentence management and ultimately the release of the offender back into the community. So if we were saying taking it for the moment, we would say that you know, life birds can expect to serve a lot longer than they would have 10 years ago. Uh, but there are certainly no, um, no kind of rules about a person being released at a certain point. There are people who are in the prison system serving life sentences who have served more than 30 years in prison. So and haven't been released. So it's not just there's no one size fits all. There's all these different decision making processes and obviously different people subject to the process that might influence the decision to release or not. You've done work on the legal interpretation of life sentences. Can you discuss this? Uh, I so the, I suppose one another aspect of the work is you know how have the courts interpreted the life sentence and the parole process and the release process. This is a big issue across Europe. You know, the European Court of Human Rights have, have made a number of decisions that, particularly in relation to the UK, about life imprisonment, life without parole type sentences, you know, what a person can expect in terms of release. The, the person might, must have the hope of release and uh, there should be a review process in place. And, you know, there has been a decision in Ireland by the European Court uh, on the life imprisonment, the mandatory life sentence was challenged. And the court found that it was compliant with the with the European Convention, and to many in Ireland that was a bit of a surprise because, uh, a lot of the issue around the reform of the process was that there was concern that it wasn't compliant with the ECHR, and um, then the European Court effectively said, well, that's not the case. You know, it is compliant, and I suppose what why why was that? Well, one of the reasons. I suppose, was that we don't divide up our sentences. We just have a life sentence. We don't say, the judge does not say that the person will serve 10 years. And then after that 10 years, uh, an assessment must be made on his level or date of dangerousness and the risk of reoffending. Because we don't have that process, which is the system in England, which has been subject to a lot of adverse decisions by the court. Because we don't have that process, and it's more complicated than this, but because we don't have that process, it means that, uh, and we have a process of judicial review of the cases, and there are lots of different kind of, well, there are mechanisms, I suppose, to ensure that there can be oversight of the process. Um, legally, the court said that it, it is compliant. Uh, now, when, I look at, when you look at my research, you know, some of the things that the European Court uh, might have said, they, you know, that the, the parole board, for example, aren't engaged in a, an assessment in relation to sentencing or an assessment in relation to dangerousness. It's, sure, it's purely incidental. Um, you know, might conflict somewhat with what the actual decision makers are saying. So I think one of the things about my research is that it looks, takes this problem and it looks at law and practice. You know, how is, how is this, this, we've got this legal interpretation, you know, how does that look in practice? And it looks quite different in terms of parole. So there is a, it mightn't uh, be sufficient to, to um, impact on any legal decision about the life sentence, you know, but the interpretation at ground level in, in my view, looking at my own research, is somewhat different to the legal interpretation of it. So I, the, the European Court said it's important to look at the reality of the situation. But, you know, I would say that there's two different realities, uh, depending on your perspective. If you're a parole decision maker, you have a very different perspective on your role versus the European Court and the Order Supreme Court's interpretation of what the role of the parole board is. So, and the Minister for Justice as as well as that. So there is this kind of disjoint there that exists. And that's actually something that, you know, I 
was interested in when I was in college, you know, this kind of this disjoint between the legal interpretation versus the practical application. And I think that that was a big part of my uh, training when I was doing my master's re- uh, research that I brought into future projects. That's always kind of carried with me. I'm always interested in the difference between what's, what the legal interpretation is and how that looks in reality. And how do you reconcile those differences? Well, it's it's difficult to reconcile those differences, and you know it's difficult actually for those most difficult for those subject to the process, you know because um, you know I, for example at the moment I'm currently doing a uh, uh, some uh, seminars and workshops with life sentence prisoners, and you know talking about the research findings in killing time and making that more accessible to that population, which I think is really important in in criminology that we do work towards um, translating our research not just into a, a public format that some of the research in criminology of course gets media attention but it's also I think important at least for me to uh, bring it to other audiences for, who might be subject to it so uh, there's doing these seminars with life sentence prisoners you know of course there is frustration because there's a, a, a big mix of information uh, that they not sure whether to rely on or not you know and so they're looking for information on the process and you know that's a difficult it's it's difficult for people subject to the process to not really know the rules or the the boundaries of the process and so um some of the i'm working with another colleague on this but trying to uh, provide information about uh, decision making or provide information about the process in a very uh, objective as much as you can be objective and kind of reliable format so that they can feel that they can rely on the information and you know and, and they can situate themselves within that process not necessarily about um, telling people about their rights or giving them expectations because the process is a very informal one but it's more about being uh, managing expectations about what they can expect from the process but also about what they need to do in terms of their own work to be able to get, engage most effectively with the process. So it's kind of a those there's a dual purpose to the program for for them. What is what are the parameters of the process, and how do I best deal with engaging? You know, and we would be focusing on things like risk assessment and risk factors and what dynamic risk factors that they might be able to engage with in the prison process uh, at the early stages, so that they have a more beneficial or more kind of a fruitful engagement with the parole process when they eventually get to that stage. In terms of newer work, what are you currently working on? Um, well, at the moment I'm working on, I'm still working in, in life imprisonment, but um, I'm working a little bit more on discretionary lifers, so people who haven't been subject to murder, the life sentence for murder, but who have been sentenced to life outside of murder, so for for example, sex offenders or those who've committed offences like manslaughter or attempted murder and looking over a long period of time as to, you know, in what circumstances will a judge impose a discretionary life sentence? It's a maximum sentence for a lot of different offences, but in Ireland it's very rarely used and uh, I think it's kind of an area that's beginning to attract some interest, um, you know, not just in Ireland but elsewhere, you know, because, you know, are judges more inclined to impose the maximum sentence? You know what rationales are there for imposing a maximum sentence? Is it to do with the seriousness of the offence? Is it to do with the dangerousness of the offender? Is it to do with the need for a parole process? All these different factors. So, you know, I'm really looking at you know what the judicial uh, discretion to impose the life sentence, and in what circumstances will they impose the maximum penalty? 
and uh, I mean I think it's bringing it up it's still in the early stages but it's bringing up some interesting information about judicial discretion and their perspectives on the 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 ultimate penalty and the benchmark of severity really in relation to uh, the imposition of life and Ireland traditionally we would have been compared to other countries at least um, I would have said more lenient in sentencing and it's really an examination are we becoming more severe in sentencing you know are we becoming more punitive the judiciary traditionally will be kind of a counterpoint to those kind of trends and um, but there are always exceptions you know and in what circumstances uh, should we permit a discretionary life sentence and what are the implications of it also so that's something I'm currently working on hoping to bring to fruition at some point who are the Irish researchers whose work is important for criminology? I, mean, I think there are loads of Irish researchers in criminology at the moment who are really important. Some of the people who have been working in the area for a long time, some people who are new and coming out with great research. I think it's really interesting to see all the different perspectives. There was actually a summer school, uh, or I think it was an autumn school two years ago, where they, I think it was in Cork, and there was... I say people who were working in academia or lecturers uh, who were giving seminars, but there was loads of PhD students coming in as well. And I was really, it was actually a great event and uh, it was for over a couple of days. And there were so many different PhD students doing er- research on areas across all the disciplines. You know, I was really amazed about how many uh, new people were coming through and some of whom have finished up and have gotten jobs or they're working in the field now, which is really great to see. So I think, you know, people initially we would think about you know like Shad Maruna, Ian O'Donnell, uh, Shane Kilcommons and Limerick would have been the, the people who kind of really pushed criminology a lot in, uh, you know, in the early decades but now there's loads of people like Deirdre Healy for example in UCD and uh, David Doyle and Minute and uh, Orla Lynch in UCC so there's loads of different people that, you know, who are working to uh, bring criminology across lots of different fields into, uh, uh, into the the public arena and into the, the academic arena is pushing it a lot more strongly. We see that, I think, with uh, all the different degrees that are being um, uh, created in the last couple of years that are focused on criminology. There's a lot of interest, obviously, from students in criminology because it is an interesting field and if one, for whatever reason, is interested in crime, true crime is all over the television and these days. So it's, it's, it's part of that development, I think, as well. And how do you see the field of criminology in Ireland? What's next? Um, I think there is big development, I suppose, to move criminology into undergraduate degrees, either entirely or in part. And so I think that's, you know, that's a positive. Um, I think with terms of research, you know, as, as I was saying, there seems to be a shift where there is going to be more funding, hopefully, available for uh, criminal justice research. I think one of the things that we need is that a base level of research across all the different aspects of criminal justice and criminology so that we have we can build up you know and get more sophisticated in terms of what we want to look at you know so you know like i was saying with my own research when you're starting from scratch you know you talk about building up information it's the first thing you're doing so i think once we have that level you know there'll be there can be so many different uh, research projects and with so many such a diverse population of people coming through there should be lots of interesting research coming out there that should be of interest academically, but also in the public arena and hopefully be able to influence policy as well. You know, so I think this is the real, real, really important aspect of, of our work 
uh, we are fortunate that we work in a field that there is a lot of public interest and we can use our work or try to create a platform for our work where we can influence policy or we can influence um, decision making or we can influence what's what's happening at uh, in terms of uh, how how organizations operate or how institutions operate so I think that's a really important part of our work as criminologists you know from my point of view that's something I think about when I uh, start a project you know how will this be of influence to decision makers will this be of influence at a policy level you know will there be is there a need for uh, research in this area um, to, for those who work in the field you know so I think that that's for me at least it's not for everyone but for me that's an important part of my work so what are the strengths and weaknesses of criminology in Ireland I think the strengths probably are the people who work in the field uh, I think there's those are really committed people who are doing excellent work and I think probably the weaknesses are that the maybe the institutional structures aren't really st- as strong as the people working you know so that within it so I suppose it's more of a struggle for us trying to establish these um, things that are in existence for a long period of time in other jurisdictions like say if you take you know England and Wales they have journals they have institutes they have centres you know whereas we're really still even though things have progressed a lot we're still really at that stage where we're trying to build up these kind of institutions and structures that can kind of go on for decades and without the without the need for one individual to push it yeah, as a or one group of people to push things forward. It can just have its own existence and continue on um, as people come and go. So I think that's probably the real challenge for criminology going going into the future in Ireland. It's build up these structures that um, we can all feed into and it's to the benefit of the, the community, criminal justice and criminology community as a whole. How would you like to see criminology develop? Well, I guess what I was saying there, just just that there will be more um, opportunities for people to feed into the, these kind of things, like a journal that maybe a criminology journal that was you know quite well respected that we could all f- publish our research in. I think one of the things is definitely, um, it's certainly in the law area, law criminal justice area, which I would be kind of more part of in terms of criminology. You know, maybe there's a kind of tendency to if you want to publish your research, you should publish it in an international peer-reviewed journal, and maybe that doesn't, there isn't one, maybe Irish-based one that you you might choose over, let's say, for example, the British Journal of Criminology. So I think it would be, it would be really great to have that, you know, whether it was in, within one institution or the collective, collectively across all different institutions, it would be great to have that uh, reputation in Ireland for producing research, not just Irish research, but research across different jurisdictions so that would be great and again like I guess establishing more um, embedded institutions like centres and um, institutes that focus on criminology either within the law department or in psychology or both or of sociology or whatever the case may be and um, it is an interdisciplinary research which is a challenge you know because we're all in different departments and you know geographically let's say in the campus you know I'm in this building but there's somebody else who works in criminology at the other end of the campus, but we don't see each other. We work in different departments. And so there's that kind of challenge, I think, for all criminologists that we're all working from different fields, different perspectives. It's hard to be collective sometimes in, in those circumstances, but we should try. Dr. Damard Griffin, thank you very much for taking part in UCC's podcast series. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.